Chapter Five of Three Years in the Federal Cavalry by Willard Glazier. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jonathan Limebrook of Lake Elsinore, California. Chapter Five: Pope's Campaign in Northern Virginia. 1862. Kilpatrick at Beaver Dam. Captain John S. Mosby. Return of the Raiders. Complimentary Orders. The Harris Light at Anderson's Turnout. Rebel Account of the Scare. General John P. Hatch, His Misfortunes and Justification. Reconnaissances. Battle of Cedar Mountain. Hospital at Culpeper. General Stuart in Close Quarters. His Adjutant General Captured. Death of Captain Charles Walters. Pope driven back and waiting for reinforcements. Kilpatrick's fight at Brandy Station. Waterloo Bridge. Bristow Station. Manassas Junction. Battle of Groveton. Second Bull Run. Chantilly and Death of Kearney General Pope resigns Our prospects as a nation were anything but promising about the 4th of July, 1862. Our operations in the Shenandoah Valley had been very expensive and fruitless. The Peninsular Campaign, which promised so much at its beginning, which had proceeded at so fearful a cost of treasure and blood, was pronounced a failure at last, and the great armies, depleted and worn, were well-nigh discouraged. The celebration of the anniversary of our national birthday was observed throughout the loyal North in the midst of gloomy forebodings, and only the pure patriotism of governors of states and of the President of the United States gave people any ground of hope for success. In the army, changes of leaders were occurring, which produced no little amount of jealousy among the stars, and upon which the opinion of the rank and file was divided. On the 14th of July, General John Pope, having been called from a glorious career in the West, took command of the Army of Virginia, which was a consolidation of the commands of Fremont, Banks, and McDowell. Before General Pope left Washington, he ordered General Rufus King, who was in command at Fredericksburg, to make a raid on the Virginia Central Railroad for the purpose of destroying it at as many points as possible, and thus impede communications between Richmond and the Valley. This work was committed to our regiment. July 19. About six o'clock this evening, the Harris Light was set in rapid motion almost directly south. By means of forced march of forty miles through the night, at the gray dawn of the morning we descended upon Beaver Dam Depot on the Virginia Central, like so many ravenous wolves upon a broken fold. Here we had some lively work. The command was divided in several squads, and each party was assigned its peculiar and definite duty. 
so while some were destroying culverts and bridges, others were playing mischief with the telegraph wires, others still were burning the depot, which was nearly full of stores, and a fourth party was on the lookout. During our affray we captured a young Confederate officer who gave his name as Captain John S. Mosby. By his sprightly appearance and conversation he attracted considerable attention. He is slight yet well-formed, has a keen blue eye and florid complexion, and displays no small amount of southern bravado in his dress and manners. His gray plush hat is surmounted by a waving plume, which he tosses as he speaks in real Prussian style. He had a letter in his possession from General Stuart, recommending him to the kind regards of General Lee. After making general havoc of railroad stock and rebel stores, we started in the direction of Gordonsville, but having ascertained that a force of rebels much larger than our own occupied the place, we turned northward and reached our old camp at midnight, having marched upward of eighty miles in thirty hours. Some of us will not forget the ludicrous scenes which were acted out, especially in the latter portion of the raid. In consequence of the jaded condition of our horses, it was necessary to make frequent halts. To relieve themselves and animals, when a halt was ordered, some men would dismount, and sinking to the ground through exhaustion, would quickly fall asleep. With the utmost difficulty they were aroused by their comrades when the column advanced. Calling them by their names, though we did it with mouth to ear, and with all our might, made no impression upon them. In many instances we were compelled to take hold of them, roll them over, tumble them about, and pound them, before we could make them realize that the proper time for rest and sleep had not yet come. Others slept in their saddles, either leaning forward on the pommel of the saddle, or on the roll of coat and blanket, or sitting quite erect, with an occasional bow forward or to the right or left, like the swaying of a flag on a signal station, or like the careerings of a drunken man. The horse of such a sleeping man will seldom leave his place in the column, though this will sometimes occur, and the man awakes at last to find himself alone with his horse, which is grazing along some unknown field or woods. Some men, having lost the column in this way, have fallen into the enemy's hands. Sometimes a fast-walking horse in one of the rear companies will bear his sleeping lord quickly along, forcing his way through the ranks ahead of him until the poor fellow is awakened and finds himself just passing by the colonel and his staff at the head of the column. Of course, he falls back to his old place, somewhat confused and ashamed, and the occurrence lends him just excitement enough to keep him awake for a few minutes. It is seldom that men under these somnambulic circumstances fall from their horses. Yet sometimes it does happen, and headlong goes the cavalier upon the hard ground or into a splashing mud puddle, while general merriment is produced among the lookers-on. But as no one is seriously injured, 
The fallen brave retakes his position in the ranks, and the column proceeds as though nothing had happened. We had all these experiences in one form or another in our raid, and on reaching camp we found that several men had lost their caps by the way. The day following our arrival at camp, the general in command issued his complimentary message, namely, Headquarters of Army, Virginia, Washington, July 21. To Honorable E. M. Stanton, Secretary of War. Sir, the cavalry expedition I directed to General King to send out on the 19th instant has returned. They left Fredericksburg at 7 p.m. on the 19th, and after a forced march during the night made a descent at daylight in the morning upon the Virginia Central Railroad at Beaver Dam Creek, 25 miles north of Hanover Junction, and 35 miles from Richmond. They destroyed the railroad and telegraph line for several miles, burned the depot, which contained 40,000 rounds of other musket ammunition, 100 barrels of flour, and much valuable property, and brought in the captain in charge as a prisoner. The whole country round was thrown into a great state of alarm. One private was wounded on our side. The cavalry marched 80 miles in 30 hours. The affair was most successful and reflects high credit upon the commanding officer and his troops. As soon as full particulars are received, I will transmit to you the name of the commanding officer of the troops engaged. I am, sir, very respectfully, your obedient servant, John Pope, Major General Commanding. The above order was received with great gladness by the boys of the Harris Light, and Kilpatrick had just reasons to feel proud of his brave boys and their noble deeds. As we had done so well in this branch of business, it was natural for the commanding general to be looking out for more similar jobs for us, and indeed they came. July 24 Kilpatrick was again launched out with his men on another raid upon the Virginia Central Railroad, which this time we struck at Anderson Turnout. However, we did not reach the railroad before we had surprised a camp of rebel cavalry, with which we had a sharp skirmish on the south bank of the North Anna River. But having the advantage of the enemy, we defeated them, captured their camp, with several prisoners and horses. A large quantity of camp and garrison equipage fell into our hands, which we burned. Unfortunately for us, we did not come just in time to take the cars, but we created an alarm quite as extensive as that which prevailed at Beaver Dam on our former visit. The Richmond Examiner, commenting upon the affair, gave the following truthful rendering. Another scare on the Central Railroad. When the train from the west on the Central Railroad reached Fredericks Hall, a station fifty miles from this, it was met by a rumor that the Yankee cavalry had made another raid from Fredericksburg and had possession of the track at Anderson Turnout, ten miles below Beaver Dam and thirty miles from Richmond. The telegraph wire not being in working order, there was no means at hand of ascertaining the truth of this report. 
Under the circumstances, the conductor, not choosing to risk the passengers and train, took an extra locomotive and ran down to Anderson's on a reconnaissance. When he reached this place, he found the report of the Yankees at that point correct, but they had left several hours previous to his arrival. He learned the following particulars. At quarter past nine a.m., just a quarter of an hour after the passage of train from Richmond, the Yankee cavalry, several hundred in number, made their appearance at the turnout. Having missed the train, they seemed to have no particular object in view, but loitered about the neighborhood for a couple of hours. They, however, before taking leave, searched the house of Mr. John S. Anderson, which is near the railroad, and took prisoner his son, who is in the Confederate service, but at home on sick furlough. They also took possession of four of Mr. Anderson's horses. They made no attempt to tear up the railroad having no doubt had enough of that business at Beaver Dam last Sunday. They did not interfere with the telegraph wire through prudential motives, but shrewdly guessing that any meddling with that would give notice of their presence. Of the movements of our troops occasioned by this second impudent foray, it is unnecessary to say anything. The central train reached the city at eight o'clock, three hours behind its usual time. End quote. It is evident that we are greatly embarrassing the rebel traveling public by our raids, destroying public property, capturing prisoners and horses, and gaining some valuable information. We have learned from contrabands and other sources that rebel forces in considerable numbers are being transported westward over this route. Some grand movements are undoubtedly on foot. We have received word that on the 14th, General John P. Hatch, with all his cavalry, was ordered by General Banks to proceed at once upon Gordonsville, capture the place, and destroy all the railroads that sent her there, but especially to make havoc of the Central Railroad, as far east as possible, and west to Charlottesville. For some reason, General Hatch was too slow in his movements, and General Ewell, with a division of Lee's army, reached the place on the 16th, one day ahead of Hatch. Thereupon Hatch was ordered to take from 1,500 to 2,000 picked men, well mounted, and to hasten from Madison Courthouse over the Blue Ridge and destroy the railroad westward to Staunton. He commenced the movement, but after passing through the narrow defiles of the mountains at Swift Run Gap, he felt that there was no hope of accomplishing anything, and returned. General Pope immediately relieved him from command, and appointed General John Buford, General Banks' chief of artillery, in his place. After some months had elapsed, the following correspondence between General Hatch and his former command will partly vindicate, if it does not fully justify, his course. 2nd Cavalry Brigade, 3rd Army Corps, near Fort Scott, Virginia, 1862. To Brigadier General John P. Hatch. General, the accompanying saber is presented to you by the officers of the 1st Vermont and 5th New York Cavalry. We have served under you while you commanded the cavalry in Virginia, 
a period of active operations and military enterprise, during which your courage and judgment inspired us with confidence, while your zeal and integrity have left us an example easier to be admired than imitated. We who have passed with you beyond the Rapidan and through the Swift Run Gap are best able to recognize your qualities as a commander. Accept, therefore, General, this testimonial of esteem offered long after we were removed from your command, when the external glitter of an ordinary man ceases to affect the mind, but when real worth begins to be appreciated. On behalf of the officers of the 5th New York, Robert Johnstone, Lieutenant Colonel, 5th New York Cavalry. To the officers of the 5th New York Cavalry and 1st Vermont Regiments of Cavalry. Gentlemen, a very beautiful saber, your present to myself, has been received. I shall wear it with pride, and will never draw it but in an honorable cause. The very kind letter accompanying the saber has caused emotions of the deepest nature. The assurance it gives of the confidence you feel in myself, and your approval of my course when in command of Banks Cavalry, is particularly gratifying. You, actors with myself in those stirring scenes, are competent judges as to the propriety of my course, when it unfortunately did not meet with the approval of my superior, and your testimony, so handsomely expressed, after time has allowed opportunity for reflection, more than compensates for the mortification of that moment. I have watched with pride the movements of your regiments since my separation from you. When a telegram has announced that in a cavalry fight the edge of the saber was successfully used, and the enemy routed, the further announcement that the 1st Vermont and 5th New York were engaged was unnecessary. Accept my kindest wishes for your future success. Sharp sabers and a trust in Providence will enable you to secure it in the field. Your obedient servant, John P. Hatch, Brigadier General. August 5. The Harris Light was again sent out on a reconnaissance to the Central Railroad, which we struck on the 6th, about 10 o'clock a.m., at Fredericks Hall. The depot, which contained large supplies of commissary and quartermaster stores, was burned. The telegraph office was also destroyed, with considerable length of wire, while the railroad track was torn and otherwise injured, principally by the fires we built upon it. In a factory near the station were found huge quantities of tobacco. The men took as much as the jaded condition of their horses would permit, and the remainder was wrapped in flames. All this was accomplished without loss on our side. These daring and successful raids made Kilpatrick very conspicuous before the army and country. He was complimented by the general commanding both in orders and by telegraph, and his name became a synonym of courage and success. This gave wonderful enthusiasm to his men, and their devotion to him was unbounded. 
Wherever he led us we gladly went, feeling that, however formidable the force or dangerous the position we assailed, either by main force we could overcome, or by stratagem or celerity we could escape. This gave our young hero a double power. August 8. Today Kilpatrick was ordered with his regiments to reconnoitre in the direction of Orange Courthouse. He advanced by way of Chancellorsville and Old Wilderness Tavern, but on approaching the courthouse we found it occupied by a heavy force of the enemy. It is evident that the rebel army is advancing with a show of fight towards the upper fords of the Rapidan, where, we understand, Generals Buford and Bayard are picketing. After ascertaining all we could about present and prospective movements, we returned to our old camp, having made a swift and tedious march. Battle of Cedar Mountain On the ninth was fought the memorable Battle of Cedar or Slaughter's Mountain, in which both sides claimed the victory. The Confederates certainly had the advantage of position, having taken possession of the wooded crest before the arrival of our advance, and they also greatly outnumbered the Union ranks. But their loss was nearly double our own, and nearly the same ground was occupied by the combatants at night, which each held in the beginning of the fight. The cavalry was not conspicuously engaged in this bloody fray, except such portions of it were escort or bodyguard to officers in command and among these some were killed. The main cavalry force watched the flanks, doing good service there. August 10. At an early hour of the day, the Harris Light was ordered to report at Culpeper Courthouse, and we were soon on the march. On arriving at our destination, we found the place well-nigh filled with our wounded from the battle of yesterday. It is estimated that not less than 1,500 of our men were killed and wounded, about a 1,000 of the latter having found a refuge here. The seventh part of the casualties of a battle, on an average, will number the killed and mortally wounded. The others claim the especial tension of their comrades. It is heart-sickening to witness their bloody, mangled forms. All the public buildings and many private residences of this village are occupied as hospitals, and the surgeons, with their corps of hospital stewards and nurses, are doing their work, assisted by as many others as have been detailed for this purpose, or volunteer their services. The rebel wounded who have fallen into our hands receive the same attention that is bestowed upon our own men many of them acknowledging that they are far better off in our care than they would be among their confederates. These hospitals are all much more quiet than one would naturally suppose. How calmly the brave boys endure the wounds they have received in defense of their beloved country. Only now and then can be heard a subdued sob or a dying groan, while those who are fully conscious though suffering excruciating pain, are either engaged in silent prayer or meditation, or reading a testament, or a last letter from loved ones, and patiently awaiting their turn with the surgeon or the nurse.
In the most available places, tables have been spread for the purpose of amputations. We cannot approach them, with their heaps of mangled hands and feet, of shattered bones and yet quivering flesh, without a shudder. A man must need the highest style of heroism willingly to drag himself or be borne by others to one of these tables, to undergo the processes of the amputating blade. But thanks be to modern skill in surgery, and to the discoverer of chloroform, for by these the operations are performed quickly and without the least sensation, until the poor brave awakes with the painful consciousness of the loss of limbs which no artificer can fully replace. Thus the skill displayed and the care taken greatly mitigate the horrors of battle. Men here are wounded in every conceivable manner, from the crowns of their heads to the soles of their feet, while some are most fearfully torn by shells. It had been thought that men shot through the lungs or entrails were past cure, yet several of the former have been saved, and a few of the latter. Indeed, it would seem as though modern science was measuring nearly up to the age of miracles. We found that a large force of cavalry was concentrating at Culpeper, awaiting new developments. Reconnaissances are of frequent occurrence, and all of them reveal that the enemy is in motion, concentrating on our front. Our picket lines are made doubly strong, and the utmost vigilance is enjoined. Scouts and spies are on the rampage, and more or less excitement prevails everywhere. IMPORTANT CAVALRY MOVEMENTS AUGUST 16 Today, a, a small detachment of cavalry under Colonel Broadhead of the 1st Michigan Cavalry was dispatched on a scout in the direction of Louisa Courthouse. Having penetrated to within the enemy's lines, and not far from the courthouse, they made a swift descent upon a suspicious-looking house, which proved to be General Stewart's headquarters. The general barely escaped through a back door, as it were, by the skin of his teeth, leaving a part of his wardrobe behind him. His belt fell into our hands, and several very important dispatches from General Lee. Stuart's adjutant-general was found concealed in the house and captured. General Pope, in his official report, speaks of this affair as follows, quote, the cavalry expedition sent out on the 16th in direction of Louisa Courthouse captured the adjutant general of General Stuart and was very near capturing that officer himself. Among the papers taken was an autograph letter of General Robert E. Lee to General Stuart dated Gordonsville, August 15th, which made manifest to me the disposition and force of the enemy and their determination to overwhelm the army under my command before it could be reinforced by any portion of the Army of the Potomac. End quote. Had it not been for the timely discovery of this rebel order, General Pope's army, only a handful to the multitudes which were gathering against him from the defenses of Richmond, would have been flanked and probably annihilated. 
Assured, however, that reinforcements from McClellan's army could certainly reach him before long, General Pope held his advance position to the last, our pickets guarding the fords of the Rapidan. On the 18th, the entire force of cavalry relieved the infantry pickets, and evident preparations were being made for a retreat. On the day following, a sharp skirmish took place with rebel cavalry, which appeared across the narrow, rapid river. In this engagement, Captain Charles Walters of the Harris Light was killed, and his remains were interred at midnight, just as orders were received to retreat on the road to Culpeper. The cavalry under General Bayard is acting as rear guard to our retreating columns. Stuart's cavalry, with whom we are engaged at almost every step, is vanguard of the rebel army, which is advancing as rapidly as possible. The prospect before us is exceedingly dark. Nothing is more discouraging to a soldier than to be compelled to retreat, especially under a general whose first order on assuming command contained the following utterances. Quote, Meantime, I desire you to dismiss from your mind certain phrases which I am sorry to find much in vogue among you. I hear constantly of taking strong positions and holding them, of lines of retreat and bases of supplies. Let us discard such ideas. The strongest position a soldier should desire to occupy is one from which he can most easily advance against the enemy. Let us study the probable lines of retreat of our opponents, and leave our own to take care of themselves. Let us look before, and not behind. Success and glory are in the advance. Disaster and shame lurk in the rear. We all felt that the moment we begin to turn our backs to the enemy, that moment we acknowledge ourselves either outgeneraled or whipped a thing most disheartening, and to which pride never easily condescends. Our only hope was based on early reinforcements. Should these fail us, we saw nothing but defeat and disaster in our path. August 20 While our cavalry forces were feeding their horses on the large plains near Brandy Station, about six o'clock this evening, a heavy column of Stuart's cavalry was discovered, approaching from the direction of Culpeper. Kilpatrick was ordered to attack and check this advance, which he did in a spirited manner. The Harris Light added fresh laurels to its already famous record and made Brandy Station memorable in the annals of cavalry conflicts. Stuart's advance was not only retarded, but diverted, and it was made our business to watch closely his future movements. On the 21st, we reached Freeman's Ford on the Rappahannock, which we picketed, preventing the enemy from effecting a crossing. As the fords of the river were generally heavily guarded up to this point, the enemy kept moving up the stream toward our right, evidently designing to make a flank movement upon us. On the 22nd, a notable cavalry engagement with light artillery took place at Waterloo Bridge. During this fight, a rebel shell took effect in our ranks, 
killing instantly the three horses ridden by the three officers of the same company, dismounting the braves very unceremoniously, but injuring no one seriously. Through the darkness of the night following, Stuart, with about fifteen hundred picked cavalry, effected a crossing of the river, and after making quite a detour via Warrenton, came down unperceived through the intense darkness and the falling rain upon General Pope's headquarters near Catlett Station. He captured the General's field quartermaster and many important documents, made great havoc among the guards, horses, and wagons, and finally escaped without injury to himself, with about three hundred prisoners and considerable private baggage taken from the train. His victory was indeed a cheap one, but we all felt its disgrace, which the darkness to some extent explained, but did not fully excuse. August 23. A severe contest occurred today at Sulphur Springs. The enemy is pressing us hard at every crossing of the river, and continues to move toward our right. Skirmishing occurs at nearly every hour of the day and night, occasioning more or less loss of life. Yesterday, in a skirmish led by General Sigel, who had crossed the river, General Bolin was killed, and our forces driven back to the north side of the river. While this maneuvering was going on along the Rappahannock, General Lee had dispatched Stonewall Jackson to pass around our right, which he did by crossing about four miles above Waterloo and on the 25th he struck our forces at Bristow Station, where a severe contest took place, the losses in killed and wounded being heavy on both sides. But the enemy was successful in taking possession of the railroad, and in the evening a portion of Stuart's cavalry, strengthened by two regiments of infantry, advanced to Manassas Junction, where they surprised and charged our guards, capturing many prisoners, also ten locomotives, seven trains loaded with immense quantities of stores, horses, tents, and eight cannon. They destroyed what they could not take away. The rebel General Ewell, having followed closely in the track of Jackson, also came upon the railroad in rear of General Pope's army. Our commander, greatly astonished at this embarrassing juncture of affairs, began to make the best disposition of his forces to extricate himself from the toils that had been carefully laid for him, still hoping that new forces would come to his aid from McClellan's army via Alexandria. But hope deferred made his heart sick, and he was compelled to encounter the immense rebel hosts, not only massed on his front, but also lapping on his flanks, and penetrating, as we have seen, even to his rear. The situation was critical in the extreme, and had not the available forces behaved themselves with undaunted courage, and at times with mad desperation, the disaster would have been unprecedented. Several unimportant and yet hotly contested battles were fought at Sulphur Springs, Thoroughfare Gap, Bristow Station, etc., and early on the morning of the 29th commenced the Battle of Groveton, by some called the Second Bull Run. 
The rebels were in overwhelming numbers, though driven badly during the earlier hours of the day, and had Fitz John Porter brought his forces into the action, the victory must have been ours. The cavalry, though quiet most of the day, made an important charge in the evening. The carnage had been terrible, and the fields were strewn with the dead and dying. It is estimated that the casualties would include not less than 7,000 men on our side alone, and it is fair to suppose that the enemy had lost not less than that number. August 30. Our lines, having fallen back during the night, the battle was renewed today on the field of the first bull run. But the fates were again against us, and, though not panic-stricken, our men retired from the field at night, until they rested themselves on the heights of Centerville. The enemy did not follow us very closely, not attempting even to cross Bull Run. On the 31st, General Pope expected to be attacked in his strong position at Centerville, but the enemy was too cautious to expose himself in a position so advantageous to ourselves, where the repulse of Malvern Hill might have been repeated. Quiet reigned along our entire line during the day. Kearney's Death at Chantilly September 1 Becoming aware that a flank movement was in operation, General Pope started his entire army in the direction of Washington. But his army had not proceeded far before one of his columns which had been sent to intercept the Little River Turnpike near Chantilly, encountered Stonewall Jackson, who had led his weary yet intrepid legions entirely around our right wing, and now contested our farther retreat. General Isaac J. Stevens, commanding General Reno's second division, who led our advance, at once ordered a charge, and moved with terrible impetuosity upon the foe but he was shot dead on the very first start by a bullet through his head. His command was thereupon thrown into utter disorder, uncovering General Reno's first division, which was also demoralized and broken. Just at this critical moment, General Philip Kearney, who was leading one of General Heinzelman's divisions, advanced with intrepid heart and unfaltering step upon the exultant foe. This was during a most fearful thunderstorm, so furious that with difficulty could ammunition be kept at all serviceable, and the roar of cannon could scarcely be heard a half a dozen miles away. The rebel ranks recoiled and broke before this terrible bolt of war. Just before dark, while riding too carelessly over the field and very near the rebel lines, Kearney was shot dead by one of the enemy's sharpshooters. His command devolved upon General Burney, who ordered another charge, which was executed with great gallantry, driving the enemy from the field, and defeating the great flanker in his attempts farther to harass our retreating columns. But our success had been dearly bought. Two generals had been sacrificed, and Kearney especially was lamented all over the land. Of him the poet sings, quote, our country bleeds with blows her own hands strike, 
He starts, he heeds, he cries for succor. In a foreign land he dwells, his bowers with luxury's pinions fanned, his cup with roses crowned. He dashes down the cup, he leaves the bowers, he flies to aid his native land. Out leaps his patriot blade. Quick to the van he darts. Again the frown of strife bends blackening. Once again his ear wars furious trump, with stern delight drinks in. Again, though the battle bolt in red career, again the flood, the frenzy, and the din. At tottering Williamsburg his granite front bears without shook the battle's fiercest brunt. So we have seen the crag beat back the blast, so has the shore the surges backward cast. Behind his rock the shattered ranks reform, Forward, still forward, until dark defeat burns to bright victory. Fame commands the song. We yield it gladly, but the glow fades as we sing. The dire, the fatal blow fell, fell at last. Full, full in deadliest front, leading his legions, leading as his wont, the bullet wafts him to his mortal goal. And not alone war's thunders saw him die. Amid the glare, the rushing, and the roll, Glared, crashed, the grand dread battle of the sky. There, on two pinions, wars and storms, he soared. Flight, how majestic, up! His dirge was roared, not warbled, And his pall was smoke and cloud. Flowers of red shot, red lightnings, strewed his bier, And night, black night, the mourner. Now farewell, O hero. In our glory's pantheon thy name will shine, a name immortal one. By deeds immortal in our heart's deep heart, thy statued fame, that never shall depart, shall tower the loftier as time fleets and show how heaven can sometimes plant its titans here below. End quote. General Pope during all the day and most of the night hastened his retreat, and on the 2nd of September his broken and demoralized columns found rest and rations within the fortifications which guard the approaches to Washington. Thus ended General Pope's brief and trying career as commander of the Army of Virginia. Here he resigned his command and was succeeded by General McClellan. End of chapter 5